0: Okay, let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 4, and the theme, like I said, in Ephesians 4, we've been going section by section here, 1 through 16, and we're going to be wrapping up this section, verses 1 through 16, which is about church growth, or how God builds the church. And so far, Paul has told us that God chooses to build the church, first of all, through Jesus, because He's the Lord of the church, and He's chosen sovereignly to do it through people. And God's strategy of building the church is Christ has decided to build the church by first putting uh, leaders in the church in place. We're going to carry his delegated authority with a specific job. So you've got to have the right leaders in place. That's where church church growth starts. And for the church today, that would be pastors, elders, evangelists, so on and so forth. And then God said that through his leadership, uh, specifically with the emphasis on teaching, teaching biblical truth, because there's all the biblical principles of how to live the right way so you can grow, through biblical teaching and modeling with a godly life, Uh, the men in place or the leaders in place in each local church are supposed to uh, focus in on training the saints, the rest of the people, preparing them, equipping them, so they actually can get in the trenches and do hands-on ministry. And then as a result, the church will grow. So the next question is, okay, that's how God chooses to build the church or grow the church. The next question then is, how do you measure growth? How do you know if you're growing or not? You know, it's kind of a diagnostic review of the process. Is this working? Are we truly growing? What kind of growth do we have? What are the marks and signs of true growth? Because you can have false signs of growth, can't you? You can have deceptive, fictitious, self-made, humanistic marks of growth. And those are superficial and God won't bless those. So what are the true biblical marks of growth? So you can gauge whether you're actually in God's plan or not. And so that's what we're looking at here. That's where Paul begins to tell us, here are some markers Of growth, and that's why I call it. Here's here's how you measure true Christian maturity in a local church. And today, uh, I want to highlight four principles or four markers that Paul's going to give us of how we can assess and diagnose whether we have true spiritual maturity and growth going on in our church. Four marks of true growth, and they're real simple, but they are vitally important, and they are priorities that need to be happening in terms of true growth going on in your church. By the way, growth uh, getting having a whole bunch of people or big numbers is not necessarily synonymous with growth. At least it's not synonymous with true biblical growth. It is true that eventually if something is alive and it's healthy, it is going to reproduce in time. But just amassing a whole bunch of numbers and people is not uh, a clear sign of growth all the time because you have many different organizations that aren't even Christian that have large numbers or you even have false religions that have large numbers. That doesn't mean they're healthy. Okay, So that's not the only measurement of growth is numbers and how many people you can amass and congregate together. So... These are uh, markers of growth on a spiritual level, so let's go ahead and look at those. And we're looking at these markers of growth in verses 13 through 14 this week, and then we'll finish next week with uh, 15 and 16. We see how uh, the church truly grows. Uh, starting, I'll just read verses 11 through 14 to get the context there. Uh, God, or really, really Christ, that was the emphasis in verse 11, Christ gave to the church gifts, some as apostles and then as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, in order that the body of the Christ might be built up, and then here's verse 13 and 14, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ... And as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or teaching, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So in there are four basic marks of maturity in a true growing church. So let's go ahead and look at those. And the first mark of maturity, or how we measure maturity, or the first principle of growth, is that number one, a growing church, a healthy growing church, has a unified belief about who Jesus is. It starts there, isn't it? I mean, Christianity is about Christ, isn't it? I mean, let's get real basic here. If you don't know Jesus personally, you're not a Christian. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life. What would you, how would you fill in the blank if you were going to define eternal life? If I were to ask you, what is eternal life? Well, Jesus' definition in John 17 was, this is eternal life, and then he said that they, that we would know Jesus Christ. That is the essence of eternal life knowing Jesus Christ, having a personal relationship with him like any other personal intimate relationship you have. He is a real person. He is alive. He is a breath away. He's a prayer away. He can literally be in your presence. He can literally be in your heart. And that's what Jesus said eternal life is. It starts with knowing Christ. That's the essence of Christianity. So the more we know him, the more mature we will be. And so that is a true sign of Christian growth on an individual basis and also on a corporate basis as a church. How well do you truly know Jesus Christ? Did you know that most people in the world would say they they know who Jesus Christ is or they have some belief about Jesus? There are very few people that would even deny that Jesus existed. Most people would say, oh, yeah, I know who Jesus is. They would acknowledge he's a historical figure. He was a religious and spiritual man. Many would affirm and say he was a great teacher and a prophet. But unfortunately, most people in the world don't really know who he is according to what he said about himself and according to what the Bible says about him. There's actually a lot of wrong views about who Jesus is today but it was also common in jesus day i don't know if you remember from the gospels jesus was walking around with his disciples at the end of his ministry and he asked them hey guys who do people say that i am and do you remember what his disciples said he said well let's see and he gave about six answers well some say that uh you're the new moses and you're kind of like john the baptist and you're also a prophet and you're a teacher and the pharisees they hate your guts they think you're from the devil and uh, he gave all these answers everybody had a view of jesus and then later on in the ministry, Then uh, you know, Jesus said to Peter, Well, Peter, who do you think I am? And he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the only one that had it right in the list of all those answers. Peter knew Jesus for who he was. He had correct views about Jesus. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Look at the beginning of verse 13. We want to have uh, godly leaders in the church who will adequately train the saints of the ministry, and as they're doing the ministry, the church is going to grow, and as a result, here are some results we're going to see. Verse 13, what is the first result of a growing, healthy church? Until we all, that's every Christian in that local church, all of us, and the emphasis here is on uh, a corporate body, not on individualism. Many times in America, we put an emphasis on rugged individualism, which is great, personal liberty is a blessing, but when it comes to the church... A priority is the family mentality, the body mentality, the corporate mentality, being interdependent on one another. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We're part of the body of Christ, and that's Paul's emphasis here. Until we all. Let's see, the government says no child left behind, right, in education. God says no Christian left behind in the church is what it should be. Okay, so every Christian needs to be on board, growing, having a vital dynamic relationship with Christ, all going on the same page, all going in the same direction together. No Christian left behind. That's what Paul's emphasis here. So it's on the corporate identity of the body. Until we all, and our church is small enough at Grace Bible Fellowship, to, we've got a list of who we all are. We know the we all. We know every person, we know every family that's affiliated with us on a regular basis. So our goal is we all, every one of us has to be growing together as a body until we all attain attain to the unity of the faith, he says. And the definite article, the faith, what he's talking about is the basics of what Christian doctrine is, the basics of what Christianity believes, the basics of what Jesus taught, the basics of what the apostles wrote down. So we have to have a unified belief about what basic Christianity is before we grow in any other area of our life. It starts there. What we believe is everything. That has to be the foundation. Jesus said, know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. The truth is biblical doctrine, biblical teaching, what Jesus said about reality. That's where it starts. That's the foundation. And everything else is a byproduct of that. And that's what Paul's saying. A true sign of Christian growth is when the whole church, the whole local church, every believer, all attains the unity of the faith. We are harmonious about what we stand for. We are harmonious about what we believe. That's absolutely got to be the priority. That's why when we start talking about a church plant, and I've been affiliated with a church plant before, I knew that it starts at square one. First of all, you've got to identify a called leadership and core group. And every one of those people who says they're they have got to believe the same thing about the basics. Otherwise, it is not going to happen. And if you try to start the church and there isn't unity on the basics of the Christian faith, then at some point you're going to have uh, an earthquake and things are just going to fall apart and and people are going to go in all kinds of different directions. People are going to abandon you. People are going to bicker. People are going to fight. uh, And you're going to have civil war in the church. So you've got to have a common, unified, solid foundation about the faith, Paul calls it. And then he goes on to define, well, what is the faith? And the word in your English translation says, and, a better translation, literally, the Greek word there, can be even, and that's, that's what it's saying. So listen, until we all attain to the unity of the Christian faith, even, and the emphasis for Paul is even, of the knowledge of the Son of God. So priority number one, we all need to be unified about who Jesus is. That's his point. We have got to start from there. So when we started praying about starting a church plant, it's praying, God, give us a leadership, give us a unified leadership, give us a unified core group of people. And how how did we discover our unity? Well, we wrote out a statement of faith. Here's what we think the basics of Christianity are. Here's what we are committed to. Here's what we believe what the Bible says. And then everybody read through that, and we either agreed or didn't disagree. And if there was a disagreement, then we had to talk it through. And everybody that was harmonious with it, they jumped on board. There were people who were interested in the church who read through the statement of faith, and they wanted to join the church. And when they read the statement of faith, there was one or two points that... They couldn't agree with in good conscience. So we dialogued and talked and prayed, and God led them elsewhere, and that's fine. But we want to start with a harmonious, united foundation. That's what also led us to come up with these distinctives that we try to distill from Scripture, priorities in ministry based on biblical teaching. Here's what our church, anyway, is going to be committed to doing. And we think it comes out of Scripture. So that's where it starts. But Paul's emphasis, we need to be unified in the Christian faith, but particularly on who Jesus is. And just, I'm not going to take anything for granted and assume anything. That many of you who have been Christians a long time, or I think I know you, that. I need to skip over this and say, well, you know who Jesus is. Well, I'm going to go over it anyway. I want to highlight right now A through J just real quickly of what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. Okay, So that's, those are your blanks there on number one. A growing church has a unified belief about who Jesus is. Every religion in the world believes in Jesus. But what does the Bible actually teach about Jesus? First of all, uh, I put their letter A, Jesus is eternal. This sets biblical Christianity apart from every other religion in the world, by the way. The Bible teaches that Jesus is eternal. In other words, he is uncreated. He never had a beginning. He has always existed. Mormonism, popular religion here in America, teaches that Jesus ultimately is a created being. He he has not always existed. And I'm not bashing the Mormons. That's their formal stated teaching, and they're proud of it. They believe that Jesus is a created being. The Bible clearly teaches Jesus has been around from all eternity. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, or Jesus, if you will. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God the Father, and the Word himself was God. He was in the beginning at the time of creation was Jesus or the Word. He has always existed. He never had a beginning. Hebrew says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's an eternal being. Absolutely essential. Absolutely. And you can look at any... That's one of the best ways you can gauge and discern and critique a religion or somebody's belief system is ask him first and foremost, not what you believe about evolution or what do you believe about politics. What do you believe about Jesus? Get, just cut to the chase and start digging. Do you, believe, do you believe Jesus? Oh, yes, I do. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, He's the Son of God. Well, that's a good answer. What do you mean by that? Well, He's from the Father. Yeah, that's a good answer. But, and then you've got to keep pressing. Do you believe Jesus is an eternal, uncreated being? That's going to expose their belief about Jesus right there. Because Christianity is the only religion that believes he is eternal and uncreated. Number two, uh, the Bible, or B, Jesus is to be worshipped. We don't just pray through the Father, or through Jesus to the Father. We actually can pray and should pray to Jesus himself. He is to be worshipped. Remember the wise men came at the time of Jesus' birth? It says they bowed down and they worshipped him. Jesus deserves our worship and adoration. We pray to Jesus. We worship Jesus. As you know, this is the unforgivable sin in the religion of Islam. They believe that Jesus is a prophet. He was one of 28 great prophets. He's not as good as Muhammad. Muhammad, he's not as good as Allah, obviously, because Allah is God. Jesus is not God according to Islam. But if you believe that Jesus can be worshipped, you are committing the greatest sin in Islam. And yet the Bible commands us that's the greatest act of worship that we're supposed to do, is worship the Lord Jesus Christ, because He is worthy. Uh, Letter C. The Bible says that Jesus is the creator. He made all things. He's not just a created being. This sets us apart from religions like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who say they believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but if you were to ask them, did Jesus create all things, they would have to tell you, no, He didn't. The Bible says Jesus created all things. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being, says John 1, 3. The world was made by him, says John 1.10. Colossians chapter 1 says he brought everything into existence by the word of his power. Jesus is the creator. He created with the Father and the Spirit. Number D, or letter D, Jesus is the judge. That's what John chapter 5 says. The end of the age. The Father will judge no one, but the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son by virtue of the fact that he overcame death by resurrection, and he is now King of kings and Lord of lords, and will judge every soul. Every knee must bow to the Lord Jesus Christ someday. So he is ultimate judge. E, Jesus is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. That's the Old Testament Hebrew word for God, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, that was God's personal name. Well, kind of interesting, the writers in the New Testament, like the Apostle Paul, when they started writing in Greek, they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they translated Yahweh and gave it the word Lord. So they, they were literally calling Jesus Lord, which meant they were calling Jesus Yahweh, God. So they were saying the same Yahweh that was alive in the Old Testament is Jesus in a human body. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Unbelievable. Rare view. Uh, An Orthodox Jew would find that blasphemous, but that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, Letter F, Jesus is infinite in all of his characteristics. He is eternal. He knows everything. He is all-powerful. Everything that's true about God is true about Jesus. He is infinite in his being and in his attributes. That sets him apart, the Jesus we believe in. Letter G, Jesus is sinless, lived the perfect life. He never sinned. And he is our model of holiness. Jesus is perfect holiness. H, Jesus is equal to the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. But he is one and equal with the Holy Spirit and the Father. They have all three as persons existed for all eternity together, but as separate persons, but equal, and the three of them make up the one God well, I don't understand that. Well, neither do I. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. God is infinite. I am finite. God is perfect. I am sinful. His thoughts are greater than my thoughts. But all I know, that's what the Bible teaches about who Jesus really is. We call that the Trinity. And then letter I, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Boy, people don't like this today, especially in America, in our pluralistic society, right? People want to say, oh, there's many different ways to each his own, many paths to the same road. Well, Jesus... He didn't say that. John fourteen six. he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father in heaven except through me. That was exclusivism. That hurt people's feelings. That made people mad. That made the Jews of his day pick up stones to stone him to death and try to kill him. And ultimately, that's why they killed him. They executed and crucified and killed him because of who he said he was. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's what he said. There's only one name under heaven by which men can call upon to be saved, says the book of Acts. Apostle Peter. And then finally, because of all these things, this is just a summary statement, uh, letter J, Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. Jesus is almighty, eternal, infinite God. I'm just telling you, if you believe that about Jesus, that sets you apart pretty much from the rest of the world. You have a unique view about Jesus, but it is the biblical view, and that's where our unity needs to start and what we believe about who Jesus is. Let's go on to Paul's second point of how we measure maturity in a church, and that's number two, and that is a growing church has corporate maturity. Corporate means the group, not just as opposed to individuals, but the group together, we grow together, we don't just have individual growth, we, have, we grow together, corporate growth, corporate maturity, he says there in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith, even of the knowledge of the Son of God, and then his next point, another marker is, to a mature man, that as a local church, we, we, we want to become a mature person, a mature body, a mature man, he uses the word man metaphorically, and he's just talking about a body of believers, And the emphasis here for the Apostle Paul, the emphasis is on the word man, the fact that it is singular. Isn't that interesting? He's talking about a group of people, yet he refers to it in the singular. So he's emphasizing corporate solidarity, corporate unity. That is a sign of maturity in the local church. If your church body gets along and you are mature as a body, as a whole, as an entity together as opposed to a church that is made up of a whole bunch of individual cliques and factions and infighting and troublemakers and gossips and people who don't like each other in a little civil war in your own little church. That's a sign of immaturity. And who was the greatest example of immaturity in the New Testament churches that Paul had to deal with? Well, you'd have to say the Corinthians probably, right? They were. They were very immature. They were Christians. Paul loved them. They believed in God, but they were very spiritually immature. And in the first three chapters of Corinthians, Paul, he just rebukes them for three chapters because they're being carnal, they are being selfish, they are being spiritually immature. And the reason is, he says, is because they have cliques. They have factions. They're not growing together. They're on an individual basis. Me and I is more important than us and we. So as a result, you didn't have unity. You didn't have and if you don't have unity, you're not going to have growth and harmony and maturity as a Christian. So that's Paul's emphasis here, is on corporate unity together. I do want to look at one verse. This was a theme, by the way, <clears throat> that Paul addressed in every one of his epistles, where he was trying to emphasize true unity in the body, and that one of the greatest sins that Paul saw as a danger to the church was division, schisms, cliques, infighting, personality cults. It was dangerous. It's devastating to a church. And you see it all the time. I'd talk to pastors and churches weekly, and there's all kinds of fighting going on, churches that are having problems, church splits, churches falling apart, and it seems to always come back to the same basic thing. At the leadership, there's division at the leadership level. There's division at the board level. There's division at the pastoral level. They're not in sync. Uh, but look at, if you've got your Bible, look at Romans 16. Just this one verse talking about the importance of guarding against divisive people or schisms or cliques in the church and how uh, dangerous it can be. Paul took it very seriously. It's one of the greatest sins that he wanted to guard against. And he says in Romans 16, uh, verse 17, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, this is a command, really, an apostolic appeal. In other words, he's saying this is a priority, people. I've written this whole whole epistle. Now I want you to remember this as I close. Make this a priority. Keep your eye on, that. literally put a boundary on, highlight, mark out, a line of demarcation very clearly is what he said. That's what the literal Greek, Greek language is saying. Keep your eye on, mark out who? Those who cause dissensions. <whistles> Focus in, zero in, highlight, that, highlight the troublemakers. In other words, know who they are. And it's, he's giving a warning. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances con, contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. These are people who are probably not Christians, uh, who are probably actually uh, wolves amongst the sheep. And the way they exhibit their ungodly behavior is by their divisive attitude. They are not harmonious. They don't seek to be a peacemaker. We need to be a peacemaker. Even though we don't agree with everybody all the time or because we live among others as sinners, we need to be gracious and constantly being uh, peacemakers. These people, they aren't interested in peace. They're interested in their way. That's it. That's what Paul's saying. You got Boy, you got to watch out for those kind of people. Uh, verse 18, For such men, they're slaves. What are they slaves of? Well, not of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the implication is here. Uh, they're probably not believers. We don't know their hearts. We're only looking at their behavior. Not of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetite. See, it's, it's their own ego. It's just what they want. I want it this way. I want it done at this time. I want this agenda. Me, me, me. I, I, I. And that's how, those are the kind of people where you just bend over backwards to try to make peace and to a no avail, And that's when Paul says, you know what? Highlight that person. Stay away from that person. Watch out for that person. If you touch him, you're just going to get bit and you're going to get in trouble. So um, you've got to be very wise and cautious in dealing with those people. Hence, his point is a true, growing, mature church has corporate maturity. And the greatest sign of corporate maturity really is unity. Unity and peace. A bunch of peacemakers, a bunch of sinful, hard-headed peacemakers pursuing peace with one another, growing in the grace of our Lord. That is a great sign of maturity in the church. So we're looking at uh, two signs so far, is we believe the right things about who Jesus is, and we have corporate maturity, which shows itself in unity among the brethren. Number three, going back to Ephesians, what's another sign of maturity in your church? That is, a growing church fully represents what Jesus is like. How in the world is the... How in the world is the unbelieving world going to see what Jesus is like or know who Jesus is? Well, they've got to look at something, don't they? What are they, they going to look at to see what Jesus is like? Well, the only alternative is the unbelieving world is just going to have to look at Christians and the church to see what Jesus is like, right? Well, that can be a scary thing, right? Especially if we are immature and disobedient and not living a biblical life. But that is the visual aid that Jesus left behind on planet Earth so that people can get to know Him. It is the entity of the church. The church is the body of Christ. We are supposed to represent fully who Jesus is. Um, And that's what Paul says here. So if you're a mature church, a growing church, you're going to do just that. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, even of the knowledge of the Son of God, and become a mature man corporately. And then the third one, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Well, that's a loaded sentence with a whole bunch of prepositional phrases. And all he's saying is, if you're a mature church, you are going to fully represent accurately a balanced view of who Jesus is by virtue of how you function as a local church. So that when somebody looks in their community and they look at you, they will see the true characteristics of what Jesus was like. So we just got to think, well, what was Jesus like? What typified Jesus' ministry? What characterized the way he lived? And then you write those and then you consider those attributes and then that's how you analyze your church. Are we reflecting properly what Jesus is like? Well, according to the Gospels, here's some of the things to keep in mind that Jesus is like. Jesus was holy, wasn't he? He took sin seriously. He hated sin. He avoided sin. He rebuked sin. He himself was sinless. Confronted sin. So a church that's going to be like Jesus and live to the full stature of what Jesus is like and represent him well to the unbelieving world, we are going to take sin seriously, aren't we? Because when we don't take sin seriously and the world looks on us, they call us what? They call us hypocrites, right? So we've got to take sin seriously. Now there's no perfect church, no sinless church, but there are obedient churches, aren't there? There are obedient, healthy, growing churches. Even though there's not a perfect church, there are obedient churches and disobedient churches. There are functional churches and dysfunctional churches. There are biblical churches and unbiblical churches, So we need to be like Jesus. We need to be holy, take sin seriously. Um, Jesus held people... So in light of that, Jesus held people accountable for their sin, didn't he? Uh, The woman at the well, he loved her. She was a sinner. She was divorced many times over. But he didn't shy away from sin. He pointed out her sin. But then he also told her the good news. I can forgive your sin. Man, if you just trust and believe in me, I can forgive your sin. But he held her accountable. So a biblical church is going to hold people accountable. It's going to deal with sin seriously, hold people accountable. Uh, It's going to call them to the high standard of God's holiness. But in light of that, on the flip side, Jesus loved sinners, didn't he? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what the Gospel of Luke says. It says he he loved sinners. God is a friend of sinners. I'm glad God is a friend of sinners because that's how I got saved. So the church needs to be a friend of sinners, doesn't it? We need to love sinful people. We need to love the lost. That needs to motivate our prayer life. That needs to compel us in how we live and how we engage society. So we've got to be hands-on involved with sinners. Love them. Give them the gospel. Give them hope. One of our advisory council members was telling a story this morning of how they were talking with somebody who was not a sinner and this sinner was totally hopeless. I am beyond God's love, God's care, God's forgiveness. And they shared... The, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ know where sin abounds grace abounds all the more and over time the Holy Spirit opened this person's heart and they gave their life to Christ that's awesome so a church that's going to be like Jesus is a forgiving church that loves sinners what was Jesus also during the time of his ministry Jesus was dependent upon the father wasn't he as a matter of fact he said I don't do anything except that which the father tells me which also meant that Jesus had a very vital prayer life right that's how he communicated with the father in a very intimate way so a biblical godly church that is mature after the fullness of christ is going to be a dependent church we're going to depend on god as our resources first and foremost aren't we we're not going to depend on our own money our own gifted people our own ingenuity, our own manipulation, our own human wisdom, we are first and foremost, we are going to be dependent upon the Father because that's what Jesus did. Jesus was God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity. He never trusted in himself. He always trusted in the Father and did the Father's will. That's what he told us. So if we want to be like Christ, we need to do the same thing, always trusting first and foremost in the Father. God, we've got needs here in our church. We, uh, our music ministry in a couple months, God, what do we do? No, it's not what we do. It's we're trusting the Father to do something, right? To raise up people. So that needs to be the attitude of our church, because that's what Jesus was like. He depended upon the Father. He was prayerful. We need to be prayerful as well. And then just lastly, uh, just things I thought of is Jesus spoke the truth, didn't He? As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus' ministry was. I mean, as far as we know, he never wrote a book. Um, he wasn't a political or social activist. Uh, he didn't make any videos that I'm aware of. But Jesus he had a speaking ministry. And it was on an individual basis or he talked to people in small groups and he also talked to large groups. Jesus had a speaking ministry. That's what he did. And he always spoke the truth. That was the emphasis of what he did. And he told his apostles to do the same. Emphasize speaking the truth, teaching the truth, counseling the truth, preaching the truth. That was the backbone of his ministry. And then Paul adds speaking the truth in love, Right? Not compromising the truth, speaking the truth with integrity, but doing it in the right way because we were supposed to really care about people. So that's the in love part. We speak the truth in love, not condescendingly, not looking down our nose, not needlessly ostracizing people, not being unloving. We speak the truth in love because we really care about every individual person. That's what we're supposed to do. But that's what Jesus did. He modeled that for us. He spoke the truth. He did it in love. Again, the woman at the well. He could have ostracized her, huh? condemned her to hell, never offered her forgiveness or hope. He didn't do that. He talked about her sin, so he spoke about the truth, but he didn't stop there. He continued on in love. He gave her the gospel. He gave her forgiveness. It changed her life. And I believe she believed in Jesus as the Messiah. It was awesome. And really changed her eternal destiny. And that's what we can do for people. So one of the marks of a healthy, balanced church is that a growing church fully represents what Jesus is like. In other words, you know what? We're going to be a balanced church in our ministry approach. We are going to be holistic, not just believing in some things Jesus said and did, believing in everything that Jesus said and did and made a priority of. You do that, you're going to be a healthy, growing church. God is going to bless your church if you do that. And then finally, the Apostle Paul gives us number four, uh, and that is a growing church deals seriously with false teaching. You must deal seriously with false teaching. Uh, He goes on, uh, in verse 14, as a result, another one of the results of true growth is we, are, we, Christians, are no longer to be children. Literally Greek word, nepios. You ever heard of nepotism? Things go on between the family. Nepios is just the Greek word for a little baby infant. It's an immature infant. It's a helpless infant. It is a young child that is naive, that is gullible, that is Vulnerable. And they're vulnerable to being convinced, deceived, and persuaded in the wrong way. Children are like that, aren't they? You can get children to believe just about anything if you talk enough and say the right things. That's what he's saying. We can't be gullible, vulnerable, immature, undiscerning little babies in our faith. That is very dangerous. sign of maturity is growing out of that phase. So as a result, we're no longer nepios, little children, that are... And here's the characteristics of them in terms of their thinking they are tossed here and there by waves that phrase right there it's amazing in the english translate that's just one greek word tossed here and there by waves six english words to translate this huge greek word that's literally it's a nautical term you're out on the sea it's a storm and you are being tossed all over the place you are not in control the boat is the waves are you are at the mercy of the weather And you're being thrown all over the place. You're being thrown into confusion. You are getting dizzy. You are disoriented. You can't think straight. And that's the emphasis here. That is a child who's being pushed around in his thinking. He's not thinking straight. He's not thinking clearly. So we need to guard against that. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves. And also, similar, carried about. Another Greek word. Carried about. In other words, we're not in charge. Somebody else is dragging us along. We are a victim of somebody else's false teaching. We are a victim of somebody else's persuasive speech. And we don't have the discernment or the knowledge to know that we are being had. Carried about, notice, by what? By every wind of doctrine. The the word literally is teaching. By every wind of false teaching. So Paul is saying you've got to make a priority of guarding against false teaching. And I'm just telling you, in this day and age here in America... Uh, especially in the Christian church, it is—it is not a good thing. It is not a happy thought to make a priority of guarding against false teaching, because some people say, "Well, that's just too negative. That's not loving. That's not very appealing." Do you have to talk about those bad things? And I said, "Well, let's see. Did Jesus guard against false teaching? Did Jesus warn against false teaching? Did Jesus confront false teachers? Did Jesus expose false teaching? Did Jesus get angry with false teaching?" Yes, 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 yes. He did. Did the Apostle Paul? Yes. Peter, yes. John, yes. All the apostles, they made a priority of it. So if you want to be a healthy church, uh, we have got to guard our church, guard our saints, guard our mind from false teaching. Because that's how Satan works. Satan works primarily through false thinking, through false teaching. Satan is unseen. So how does he influence the world? It's through uh, thoughts and ideas and ideologies and our thinking and our thought life. That's how Satan works. Because he knows if I can get to somebody's mind, that will take care of their actions and their emotions as a result. It's what Hitler did, right? Just give me the minds of these 12-year-olds, and I'll have their life. And Saddam Hussein said the same thing. So the emphasis is on the mind, on what we think, on what we believe, and all the lies out there that can really hurt us. And they are assaulting the church. They are in the church. I just want to read two verses just to highlight that Jesus made this a priority in his ministry. Now, the leaders in the church are supposed to be shepherds, right? A shepherd is one who feeds the sheep. Correct? Correct? and leads the sheep, but that is not all right. A shepherd, a faithful shepherd, has to feed the sheep, lead the sheep, and what? Protect the sheep, right? You have vicious, ravenous wolves out there, and lions, and tigers, and bears, oh my, who want to eat the sheep. So the shepherd, he got to lay his life on the line. I think King David, when he was a boy, he was a shepherd, and didn't he beat up a bear or something like that? With a stick, can you imagine him out there? Laying his life on the line, protecting the sheep. So that's just basic to church ministry. That is basic to church leadership. Um, and I just want to read a verse from Jesus. And if you can go there, if you've got your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 7. So there was this constant, ongoing, warning ministry that Jesus had. A protective ministry. And it was against false teachers and false teaching. So starting in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, and here's that world-famous verse that Jesus said, Do not judge, lest ye be judged. Now that, that's true, but it can be taken out of context. Jesus was saying, do not judge about specific things. And the main thing he was emphasizing there is do not judge another person's motives or heart because we can't do that. Only God can. But we can judge and discern people's actions, can't we? And their words because that's objective data. And so that's why in the same chapter where Jesus says don't judge, he says in verse 13, we need to judge. We need to be discerning. We need to watch out. We need to be aware. We need to scrutinize. So look at verse 13. Or no, uh, verse 15. Here's a warning. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. That's people who teach false religious things. Beware. Watch out. Jesus just assumed false teachers are going to be around. They're going to be teaching false things. Uh, Beware of false prophets who come to you, notice, in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. They look like believers. They look like Christians. It's purposeful. They're hiding. They're being deceitful. They're trying to trick you. Oh, this can't be going on in our church. This can't be going on in the Christian Yeah, it's been going on for 2,000 years. It's going on in Jesus' day. Watch out. It's going to happen. They're not walking around with the red tail and uh, horns in their head, obvious, blatantly. They are disguised. They look like Christians. They sound like Christians. They quote the Bible. But inwardly, notice where their heart is. They're ravenous wolves. Well, how can we find out who they are? Well, verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Notice, the fruit of their life. That's their words, which we test against Scripture, and their actions. You judge them. You scrutinize them against Jesus' word. You don't judge their motives. We don't know their motives. All we have to look at is the objective data. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking about people here, false teachers. Verse 20, So then you will know them by their fruits. Man, listen to this, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me on that day, that's the judgment day. Not everyone who says to me on judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name Oh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to some of those people, I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you in life. It was all just professed words. It was meaningless. So there's a lot of self-deceived and deceived people who think they are believers and know Jesus, and they don't, according to what Jesus says here. This is going to happen. Then he's going to say to them, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or sin. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus said, and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. So the key is following what Jesus said and his word. That's how we discern deception and false teaching out there. You have to compare everything through Jesus' word, which is actually the Bible, biblical truth. That is our guide. Now I could go on, uh, but I'm not going to... um, Well, yeah, I will. Sorry, because I got another minute. I just want to read. Here's the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, basically doing the same thing. He is warning the church, because Paul was a pastor, he was an apostle, he trained elders in every local church. He planted a church in the city of Ephesus. He was there for over three years. He raised up this church. He trained up leadership in the church. He trained up elders in the church, a plurality of them. And then it was time for him to leave. And he thought, I may never be back at this church at Ephesus anymore. I love you people. I spent three years with you. And they all hugged and they kissed and they cried like we're going to do with the highness coming up here in the next 60 days. And Paul gave them a final exhortation and warning. He said a lot of things. But listen to what he says. And these are the pastors he's talking about, the advisory council of the church of Ephesus. Listen to Paul's uh, parting words. Uh, Acts 20, verse 17. From the city of Miletus, the apostle Paul went to Ephesus and he called to him the advisory council of the church of Ephesus. Then he starts talking to him, And then look at verse 28. He says, K-men, K-pastors, K-elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all of your sheep among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer, And you are to shepherd the church of God, which God has purchased with His own blood. And I know. notice, how do we shepherd? How do we guard? What do we need to be on guard for? What do we need to be looking out for? This is a warning. Because I know that after my departure, when I leave, savage wolves will come into the church. Not sparing the flock. Savage, ravenous, voracious wolves. These are people are going to enter into the church and they are going to try to shred the sheep to pieces. How? With false teaching. That's what Paul's saying. He's taking it seriously. And then he says, uh, not sparing the flock, verse 30, and and it gets worse. From among your own selves, from within your own congregation. So the first attack was from without. Now it's actually going to happen from within, in verse 30. And from among your own selves, men will arise, notice what they do, speaking perverse things. That's just talking about false doctrine. They are undermining biblical truth. What are they doing that for? Well, they're trying to w- draw away disciples after themselves. No, that's what a false teacher does. He, he's trying to get disciples to follow him, right? What does a real shepherd do? We get you to follow Jesus. It's not, come follow Cliff. Then that would be the first, bing, false teacher, false teacher, false teacher. No, it's come follow Jesus is what we should be doing, not follow me. But that's what they do. And then uh, Peter says the same thing in the book of Second Peter, same warning about the church watch out for false teachers they are selfish they are self-oriented but he said they're very subtle and they even they twist scripture which means they use scripture they hold the bible like this they quote the bible that's why they are so confusing and hard to discern sometimes wait is this person are they saying the right thing it seems kind of off kilter but i'm not sure why is it so confusing because they're using the bible they are on christian television many times They have their books in Christian bookstores. I don't know if you know that. I hope you don't walk into a Christian bookstore and just assume that every book on the shelf is A-OK. Because I went into the Christian bookstore last month and saw the top 25 Christian bestsellers and about half of them. I thought, oh my goodness, this is is frightening. This is horrible. This is dangerous stuff. This is false teaching. This undermines truth. This is not good for the saints. This is going to confuse them. So some of our most... What was it? Time Magazine... Two three years ago had the 25 most influential evangelical Christians in America listed. And I went through that list and I thought, now there's a couple on there, I don't even know if they're Christians. They don't even teach the Bible. They don't even believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe in the Trinity. How can they say that? So it's very deceptive. So we need to guard against it. Be very careful. So the emphasis needs to be on good, healthy biblical teaching because that's how we grow as Christians. And then Satan's going to be countering with very subtle christianized religiously spiritually oriented false teaching and many times it will be very hard to discern that's why we got to stay in the word keep discerning with the word asking for god's help asking the holy spirit our teacher to help us to be discerning because he can do that he can answer that prayer so we've got to take false teaching seriously and we always will and if we do god's going to help us he's going to help us grow and he's going to protect us literally from ourselves so anyway, that's the last mark of a healthy growing church. A growing church deals seriously with false teaching. And then next week, like I said, we're going to finish verses 15 and 16 and look at the last marks of a healthy church, and then we'll go on to a new section, so we'll be looking forward to that. So thank you so much for uh, being here, a part of our fellowship, as we look forward to our fellowship lunch. And right now, if you could bow your head with me, close your eyes, and let's commit our time to the Lord uh, in light of these things that the Apostle Paul talked about uh, so that we can grow. Father, we do thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for every person that you brought here today. Thank you for our first-time visitors. pray that you bless them in a real special way. Right now, I just pray you bless our fellowship lunchtime. God, what a gift that is to, to eat and enjoy each other's company, to relax and um, to get to know one another. So I just pray you bless our time together with the Holy Spirit in a, a unique way. God, thank you for the gift of your Word, the Bible, that just speaks with great clarity. And it's applicable to our lives, even though it was written thousands of years ago. God help us as a church, Grace Bible Fellowship, apply these four principles, seeking these marks of maturity in our local church, that we would know uh, who Jesus is accurately, that we would have corporate maturity, that we would be balanced, fully representing Jesus Christ to the world as they watch us, and that we would be able to be a discerning people, uh, examining everything carefully, as the Apostle Paul said, um, abstaining from evil and holding on to that which is good. But we only—we need your help to do it. We need your word. We need the Holy Spirit. We need other Christians to encourage us that way. So, God, I just pray that your hand of blessing would be upon us. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.